0: I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone! Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the strongtowns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and this week I am once again joined by my friend, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back, Chuck.
1: Hey, Abby. So nice to be here.
0: Great to have you. So the article we will be covering today is written by a good friend of yours, James Howard Kunstler, and published in the American Conservative. It is called, The Answer is the Coming Strong Town Revival. So, small
1: town, small town revival.
0: Yes, small town revival. I love <laughs> this. Do that. Yeah, I, I love this because it's kind of the antithesis of last week's article, but also aligned in a lot of ways. Nevertheless, I think it connects really nicely with some of the last discussions that we've had on this podcast. So I'm really excited to talk about it.
1: Yes, I. Uh, I it's it's interesting because I read this article and I have gotten to know Jim over the years. We are friends. And I've read basically every, every nonfiction book and a lot of the fiction books he has written. And so none of this was really shattering to me, but, but it, it was kind of like affirming in a way that uh, I think we share worldviews in a, in a lot of ways. So it's a, it's a good synopsis of his thoughts about what is coming next.
0: So I don't know him personally, but we chat an email every once in a while because I send him eyesore of the month <laughs> every once in a while. And I was featured this month, so shout That's out. That's awesome. Yeah, really excited. It's such an honor. And Congratulations. uh yeah, thank you very much. And I really like his podcast. I think he's a very interesting person. And, you know, his his writing is really interesting. And so yeah, I don't I don't know him personally, but I think I think that uh he has a really great podcast and brings on all kinds of interesting guests.
1: It's funny because I remember when I first chatted with him in person, but I think we emailed a couple times and uh you know, had had very nice back and forth. He can come across or have a little bit of a reputation as being like a cranky guy. <laughs> and you know, he there's a little like aspect of curmudgeonliness to him. CNU's uh, which is where I first met him, used to be more like a free-for-all. Yelling was encouraged, takedowns of people. There, there was a lot of like verbal combat that was kind of like <laughs> part of what it went. And he fit right in because he's a verbal combat kind of guy. And so there, there's a little aspect of him that I think people think, well, he's he's kind of abrasive, right? Man, oh my gosh. When I when I first met him, he was so warm and so nice and so cordial and i got to tell you i've been able to spend time with him and i've just found him to be one of the kindest you know m- just most generous people and just has a has a really big heart and really wants you know is is interested in ideas and and kind of takes like a lot of those cnu founders it does very low patience for like idiocy, you know, like, like I'm not going to suffer fools for long, but if you can break through that and actually, you know, contribute intellectually to a, a conversation, he's a fascinating person to talk to and very generous with his time. And I, I hear this from lots of people too. You, you know, even his last book was kind of an expose of, uh, misfit toys, People who had emailed him, who he had gotten to know over the years, who I, I think like standard urbanist tropes and and you know writers and what have you would would cast aside and overlook, and and he has found a way to to feature them and focus on them and and draw out the interesting parts of their stories to I think everyone's advantage. So I have a big big soft spot for Jim, and I realize people don't like him because he's not always politically correct and he's you know a little bit old and kind of a curmudgeon sometimes but <laughs> my gosh he is a he, he's he's one of those guys who i feel like i owe a lot to and i really try to you know break through and find the uh, the, the tender soft underbelly let's say
0: I love the way you put that. It's just a collection of misfits. Sometimes yeah. we, there are some types of people who collect misfits. I feel like I'm one of those people.
1: <laughs> the great thing about Jim's writing is it does have a little bit of the uh, the traveling preacher kind of fire and brimstone to it. And so there's a lot of John the Baptist in the desert. You know, the the end is near, the end is nigh. <laughs> Repent now, you, you will all pay for your sins. <laughs> And the thing is, like, I think he's right in a lot of ways. He's out there eating locusts and uh, wearing a loincloth and and yelling, you know, that the end is near. But the thing he's most criticized for intellectually is that he's not a technical professional. Like, he's not an engineer. He's not a planner. He doesn't have any background in this. He's just a, a guy who writes. He wrote for the uh, Rolling Stone. What does he know? And... The reality is is like that is his greatest gift. His greatest gift is the fact that he's been able to look from the outside, think rationally about this stuff, ask good like, journalist-like questions, and quite frankly, get to the heart of the BS of the American development pattern in, in ways that I think people still struggle to grasp. If you go back and read Geography from Nowhere, you go back and read The Long Emergency, this is a person who's way ahead of his time. And I even told them like this, I, I feel like, Jim, I feel like your role is kind of like a, you know, uh, the, the way arthritis is in a knee, you know, like the weather's going to change and your knee starts hurting. Things yeah. are, things, bad things are going to happen and Jim starts going <laughs> off like an alarm. And you're like, what, what, everything seems fine to me. And he's like, no, look at this. It's crazy. And then it winds up like Jim is right. And I've seen him be right again and again and again, early, but right.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that is exactly right. Well, so let's break down this article a little bit for people who don't really know about kind of the premise of some of his arguments. So this is all based on the thesis that America is going to have a small town revival And it's founded on the premise that we are entering an age of stark economic contraction that will change the terms of daily life in America. And one feature of that is our living arrangements and that shifting from big cities and suburbs back to America's small towns. He has this part where he actually goes on to describe his own town with a really fabulous metaphor. He describes it as A fine old piano with all of its strings cut saying that the bones are still there in the forms of buildings but the activities the relationships institutions are all gone and the commercial and jobs are all gone as as well he poses this fundamental question that i think many small towns have been faced with for a long time and that's how do we get back to something that resembles a high functioning society again And from his perspective, that that thing is going to be trauma that's caused by major interventions. And I think the two biggest one being collapsing oil production, as well as the lack of cheap debt available to us all. So these interventions would obviously drastically impact how we inhibit the landscape, primarily due to the need for uh, food production locally. And this is where fully functioning towns come in to support a smaller scale way of living um, and producing the things that we need in life. And in his vision, this arrangement would be built on social and economic roles that he says would give people a reason to think that life is worth living. So I definitely, reading this article, heard some of the, the negative things that you described that turn a lot of people off from his writing. But he also does have kind of a a beautiful way of looking at the world in terms of what the world could become and and really how we could become more functional at the local level. at the same time, we've had conversations for the past couple of weeks about migration patterns, about kind of our society's tendency to scale up even more we're We're going from the Walmart economy to the Amazon economy, which is even larger scale than we probably ever imagined which is totally opposite of what he's talking about. I, I'm wondering how you read that based on some of the other conversations that we've had and and whether or not you think that the scaling down of America would happen rapidly or if it is something that we'll have to move towards perhaps following the Amazon age or is it part of the Amazon age?
1: Well, your very last question is, is an interesting one. And I think it goes to where people tend to tune Jim out the quickest is this thing going to unwind quickly or slowly i think you know the million dollar answer is it will go gradually and then suddenly right like all bankruptcies do <laughs> and you know if if you read jim he he talks about two things that if you are not deeply entwined in what is going on market wise resource wise you're just kind of stepping back and looking at it you're like this is insane the first thing he said is, you know, energy is going to become more difficult. Uh, we live in an age with, of energy abundance where, you know, we've is ostensibly have solved the oil problem and we can drill oil forever. And we're going to have all, you know, Elon Musk is going to solve all our energy problems and we can have solar panels everywhere. And, you know, the second part he said is we're, we're going to have trouble reaching capital and getting capital to be able to do things. We're not going to have money. And bizarre thing is, you know, now we're starting to talk about inflation again, because there's so much money in the system and everybody has money and there's money chasing, money chasing money. And you've seen housing prices go through the roof and and all this talk about inflation and, and will the Fed raise interest rates or not. And so you look at the premise of his argument and you're like, this seems crazy because it seems the opposite of the world that we're inhabiting right now. The reality is, is from an investment standpoint, what what this is often called is like a a blow off top. So you reach this top and at the top, at the peak, the part of the exuberance, the irrationality of being at the top is feeling like we don't have to worry about energy because we're going to have unlimited energy. We don't have to worry about capital because we're going to have unlimited capital. And you, in a sense, like grow beyond uh, what your means or mechanisms are. There's a correction. And I think Jim has put his finger on, you know what? What we at Strong Hands have called the the growth Ponzi scheme, and Ponzi schemes don't end gradually; they end very suddenly. You have reached a point where all of your energy has gone into, in a sense, the next expansion, the next expansion, the next expansion, the next expansion, and it, it has to like accelerate upwards in order to keep it all going. And when it stops, it returns to this place of inertia that is way, way, way distant from where that blow-off top is. And I I think people like Jim, and I would ascribe to this, have kind of two conflicting apprehensions. And I I struggle to resolve this because one apprehension is you see where things are and you're just like, please stop making it worse. Like stop stop ascending to that next plateau. Stop running up the cliff because you're just going to fall further when you do. And then there's this like, you know, so you, you dread the fall and you dread like how far the fall looks like it's going to be. There's this conflicting apprehension where you kind of want the fall to happen now because you're like, the sooner this thing like breaks and crashes and like stops, the, the sooner we can get back to rebuilding something, putting stuff back together, the the less it's going to hurt on the way down because the less high up we will be. I think in a very practical sense, what you wind up with, and my colleague Daniel has, has said this, there's a certain mindset that comes into play of we'll deal with that after the revolution, after all the bad stuff has been wiped away. It's kind of like becomes like a cult mentality, right? Like as soon as like all the bad people are gone or as soon as the economy collapses or as soon as this, and there's a little bit of that that comes through with Jim's writing and with Jim's stuff. Um, I think it's contrasted with the fact that if you look at his life, if you look at the people that he highlights in his work, if you read like his fiction work, a lot of it is, I think it was Chris Martinson who said, collapse today before the collapse and you'll live a really nice life. (laughs) <laughs> so have a have a low burn lifestyle where you don't have to, you know, have a bunch of you don't have to have you don't have to drive and commute long distances. So if gas prices go to $4, $5, $6, $7, you're not stuck. Have a garden so that you have food so that you're not going to start Create, and this is a big part of, I think, what comes through in this article too, create relationships with your neighbors and with your communities so that you can start to put those piano strings back in place so that when you need to play your local piano, it actually works, right? Your your social construct. I've reconciled all of this by just saying, the more we can start to build our own local resiliency, uh, the easier off it's going to be, regardless of what happens, because of all the people that I'm friends with, I feel like Jim Kusellor lives personally, individually, one of the happiest, most fulfilled lives of anyone that I know. And it's because he does music locally with his, his neighbors. He, you know has his own garden where he grows his own food. He has like a very rich life in his place. It's kind of contrasted with this this, this Jeremiahish madness of his writing at times. But he actually lives like a really wonderful, fulfilled life. And I kind of think that the standard American life of take on a lot of debt, uh, take on a lot of debt to try to keep up with a certain lifestyle, um, you know, and not even now, just like keep your lifestyle from going backwards. It creates this innate tension in people that doesn't exist with people like Jim and other people who have, in a sense, opted out of that part of the craziness. I think he sees more people joining him voluntarily or involuntarily as it becomes like a better option for people.
0: That's a really interesting way of putting it. Something that has kind of been conflicting for me is his view of how kind of maybe mid-sized cities, I'll say, fall into this. Uh, I understand that he has this, you know, he has ideas that that larger cities are not going to be ideal for this. And I think that makes a lot of sense. When I look at my own neighborhood, I definitely feel like I live in a small town in a lot of ways. We're within the context of a mid-sized city, but it very much functions like a town. There's people in the neighborhood who know how to make things and do things. There's people in the trades. We grow food. We're near a river. It's very walkable. So you know when I look at my neighbors and the social networks that exist currently in my neighborhood, I I kind of look in the look at them and I say, you know, if things were to collapse right now, I actually feel like I I feel pretty confident about this group of people. There's a pretty broad range um, of people, and I think that's probably one of the most important parts. Um, but you know, for for counselor and the way that he frames it, it's not. It's not necessarily driven by the people who are there now, but it's driven by the location and the context, um, which is why he makes the argument ar- around strong towns, really small towns being the location that people like that will be driven to go to if things were to collapse. I think it makes sense because it's scaled for you know a few thousand people. And so you have a smaller community and that probably works more from kind of a governance and management uh, standpoint but yeah I, I do wonder about where where mid-sized cities fall into this conversation and and maybe maybe they wouldn't be ideal for um, total catastrophe you know loss of loss of cheap oil loss of debt but there's so many people that are there that I have to believe that there would be some kind of use of these places
1: as I'm listening to you talk i, I feel like we have to put a a little definition on the idea of collapse. Because I I think some people, when they hear that, they think, you know, Cormac McCarthy, the road, like, you know, cannibals (laughs) and like, you know, this just insanity. Jim has written some fiction books that are very interesting and they talk about what a kind of post-modernity society would look like. And I I think that is his kind of vision of of what collapse might look like. I think he has even said that, like this is one version of what this might look like. I think what we should really think of more is more of like a reset. And I think he's even used that frame too. Right now we've been trying for years to induce inflation. And we've been trying to induce inflation because there's some theories that suggest that if we can just inflate the currency, life will be better for people. And I I find this to be an insane set of theories and a very dangerous set of theories. But you know there's a lot of credibility given to it by some academics and some researchers and, and theorists and what have you. If we have, you know, four or five years of 10% inflation, which is, you know, high levels of inflation, but not like insane, I mean, we're not talking about Zimbabwe, you're not talking about Weimar, Germany, you're just talking about burning hot for a while, that will change the way Americans live and it will change it more dramatically than the pandemic did. It will change it like really, really dramatically. It will uh, reduce people's debt levels, but it will also make it really hard to borrow money uh, because your interest rates will have to be much, much higher. No one's going to loan you money at 3% when the currency depreciates by 10% a year. They're going to ask for something much higher than that. Um, And so what you will see is that economies, by their very nature, would be forced to become more localized if if the currency loses its value uh at, at that kind of a rate which you know historically would be significant but not even in the last hundred years would be without precedent so you're not talking about something that like people alive have you know people who live through the the mid to late 60s and and the 70s experienced high levels of inflation maybe i, I don't know how if we ever hit 10 percent or spent the year at 10 percent but I know seven eight percent was you know very consistent. If we did that for a decade, you're talking about like a completely different style of living. One where you know, sure, if you're making forty thousand a year now, you might be making sixty thousand. Uh, but instead of it costing hundred dollars to fill your car up with gas, it's going to cost five hundred dollars to fill your car up with gas. And your your just lifestyle is going to change because things that we import will cost a lot more there will be a a lot more incentive to use less and to conserve more and to, you know, this, this kind of high blow off economy that we have.
0: Well, and if you're living in a subdivision, you're basically stranded.
1: (laughs) I mean, you're basically stranded. Yes. And, and you look at all the like cat, I think what Jim gets into is like all the cascading things that come along with that. I mean, Amazon is very cheap today, next day ordering or two day ordering, uh, because energy is cheap and gas is cheap and capital is cheap. And, you know, for the first 15 years of Amazon, the capital markets subsidized your your purchases. I mean, they lost money every year. So it, it's the, 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 the idea of collapse does not mean that we all go to like scavenging for our food and, you know, eating our dogs, et cetera, et cetera. It just means like what we have become used to as Americans, you know, the electricity always working, the water always working, um, you know, being able to get gas whenever you want it at very cheap prices. Like all these things stop working and we become more like countries around the world, which, you know, that that's kind of like the way things work uh, in other places.
0: So would that be. A worldwide picture too. If the cost of oil and the cost of debt was very high,
1: um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think it would be f- certainly for Western economies, and certainly for economies that are their mo is selling stuff to us and then using our capital to do things with it. You know, to, today um, today, America's largest export is IOUs. It's it's money we can do that because our currency is the world's reserve currency. If China decides that, you know, we would be better off instead of getting IOUs from the U S taking our U S currency and buying up, say Montana, and then, you know, producing food and, and, and what have you, and maybe consuming our own goods in China instead of shipping them abroad and, and increasing our own people's standard of living, Um, that's a very different world economy than the one we have. And so I I think in a lot of ways, the momentum that we have coasted on since the end of World War II, where we were the last major industrial economy standing, we were the world's reserve currency. We had all the gold. We had the oil. We had, you know, we basically like dominated everything. Um, You're seeing that, you know, erode partially just because everybody else is not destitute. Uh, but also partially because of our prolificacy. And the question becomes, like, at what point does it switch? When it switches, there's a lot of reason to think it will be better off for others while it is simultaneously worse off for us. I'm not saying it will be perfect for everybody else, but I can see a, a, a scenario where if you are from India, if you are from China, if you are from Indonesia, you know, your quality of life could potentially be a lot better at the expense of, you know, the American quality of life and, and essentially us printing these IOUs and sending them around the world uh, is is, you know, kind of equivalently diminished.
0: There's a question about defining quality of life, right? Because we do have, you know, the way we live is very, we do have a very high quality of life in the United States. At the same time, One of the reason that I'm very sympathetic to some of the things that counselor is talking about is because what he's describing is kind of a return to a more localized economy where people have the types of jobs and roles that, that give you a sense of contribution to your society. And we've lost a lot of roles like that. And um, that's been traded for efficiency essentially. And a job can be such an immense source of dignity and pride and the kinds of opportunities for local manufacturing and production of goods. Um, It is really in direct conflict with our society's current expectations of efficiency. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that life is better for everyone in America. It's, It's not necessarily better for the people who are working the kinds of jobs that are not um, aligned with their full capacity um, and not giving them a sense of dignity in life, I think we're lucky with the kinds of jobs we have. But a, a lot of people don't have those kinds of roles, and we have a massive shortage of tradespeople and things who make people who make things and know how to do things. And we've kind of pushed this academic path onto everybody, and that. Is a huge loss, and I, it almost seems like we're currently experiencing a transition where we are de-emphasizing the academic path as the only path, and starting to starting to increase the the importance of roles that are not just ac- academic, which I think is important. And I kind of wonder if if that is part of the quote unquote long emergency. You know, we we are kind of shifting cultural norms currently. Um which I think is a good thing, and I think that that gives people more of a purpose in life. Um, and if if we could trade that for the level of efficiency and comfort that we currently experience today, uh, who knows what that looks like, but in some ways that's okay because it is important for people to have roles in our society that aren't you know things that that they don't want to be doing and and don't give them a a sense of meaning
1: right. I, I do feel like this is the core of kind of where Jim has arrived in, in his writing uh, and, and in his, you know, it, it, the, the things he talks about in this article as well. You, you look at quality of life, and if you are an economist measuring quality of life on a spreadsheet, uh, th- there's no question that the United States and U.S. citizens, even the poorest among us, uh, enjoy, by comparison, extremely high qualities of life. You know, our poor are far better off than the poor in any other part of the world. Our rich are bizarrely rich. Our middle class has larger homes, bigger cars, more accessories, more stuff, uh, more leisure time, so to speak, um, than, than any other society in the history of humanity. We, we, on a spreadsheet, have the highest quality of life of any society. If you are a psychologist uh, and you're looking at this data, or you are someone who I'm thinking of, um, you know, met in the medical profession who deal with health and wellness, you're looking at the US and you're like, this is a disaster. Like, these people have extremely high levels of depression, of neuroticism. We have high suicide rates. We have, you know, you, you can talk about mass shootings and what causes those and, and, and just all these like social disorders that we seem to have. Forget our physical health, which is, you know, uh, yes, we have high life expectancy, but that life expectancy is kind of mixed with this lower quality of life expectancy. Um, you know, With many, many years of, of post, you know, or subpar kind of health and, and, and wellness mixed in with, you know, what is a, a, not as long a life as other places.
0: It's almost like you, we need to step back and say, "What are we trying to do here?"
1: Yes, and and let me let me say this at the risk of being pigeonholed into like Jim's Scrouchy Old Man territory. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that we're—I I have two daughters. They're very young. They're they're sixteen and fourteen. I want them to be confident, successful, follow their dreams. I, I want them to live very happy lives, and I am grateful for a society that affords women. Lots of opportunities that they weren't afforded in the past. I'm grateful for that. I think that is a positive thing. Yet, you know, you look today and one of the things that we're pushing for, and you see this in our politics today, is more support for moms so that they can work. More support for moms so that they can leave their families and go take a job and be productive parts of the economy. So how do we do childcare so that more women can work? How do we do, you know, all these other support things throughout life? How do we give a free college or reduce college so that, you know, people and you look at these things and I recognize that in the system we have, like I want my daughters to have options. I want my daughters to be able to make choices. I don't want them To not be able to follow their dreams and what have you, but we've almost defined dreams today in America uh, as you know you're going to get a job, you're going to work, you're going to you know put in your time, you're going to do these things, and if you go to other cultures around the world, that's really not. Or you go to America in the past, that's really not how you know we define success. It's really not how we define prosperity. Where in the U.S. can you live a life like this? And, And I would argue. I think Jim is kind of recognized something, and maybe I'll make this very personal. My commute is six blocks of walking. My lifestyle is very low burn. My house by state standards in Minnesota and by national standards in the U.S. was ridiculously cheap. It cost very little to run. I have a tiny mortgage. I saved a lot of money because of that. And so I have a a nest egg that is in a sense made me comfortable where I'm not worried about where my meal is going to come from six months from now or 12 months from now. That's all because I chose to live in a small town. I am, you and I are sitting here and we can see each other and I'm wearing a suit coat and a tie because I went to the funeral of my neighbor today and I stood there in a church in my church with my neighbors and paid honor to this this very nice, kind elderly woman who was a busybody in the neighborhood. I'm not saying other people around the country don't have these experiences; they do. Um, and I'm not saying you can't have this kind of experience in a big city; you can. But being in a small town, if you're talking about quality of life, when you can weed the kind of rat race part out of it and just get back to being there, it's actually like a gorgeous place to be. And I think Jim's argument is that if we're forced to lead this lower burn life, you're not going to do that in Manhattan. You're not going to do that in San Francisco. It's not going to work because these are like the cutting edge of the Ponzi scheme. The place you can actually reconstitute things and put the strings back in the piano is in a small town where you know, you might, maybe you don't want to go to church, but you might go to church because your neighbors do. And that's where you're going to see them. And that's where you're going to build relationships. And that's where you're going to work together. And it doesn't have to be a Catholic church. It can be a mosque. It can be a synagogue. It can be the local food shelf that you all work at. Like, I don't really care what it is, but there is this kind of, I think, social part to this that is easier if nothing else in a small town, because it's kind of comes with the package. It's kind of forced on you.
0: That's all very fascinating. So basically what we can start to do now is to fill up the piano.
1: (laughs) Fill up the piano, like connect, connect the strings, repair the keys. And, and, you know, as planners, like part of that is physical, right? Like making our cities more walkable, more connected, changing our zoning, building more housing. But don't forget that a lot of it is relationships and people and, and, you know, the, the, I, I think one of the the main critiques, you know, Patrick Deneen has this critique of of modern society and and his book, Um, Why Liberalism Failed, is a is to me an essential one. Barack Obama recommended it. It was it's a very good book. Um he talks about the self-making self and this idea that, you know, the role of government is to liberate us so that we can follow our dreams. Again, I'll make this a little personal, not to not to, not to push my own personal views on everyone, but to maybe give a, a counter to that. You know, a big part of the Catholic teaching is that you, you can't be a self. You you are, by definition, like connected to, you know, we can talk about being connected to the spiritual, but but at the very least, you're connected to the people around you and the society that you live in. And you do take on obligations to them just by inheriting... What's been given to you, and i I think sometimes we rebel against that, but when you accept that burden when you accept that kind of yoke on yourself like I will live that life, it actually is a very fulfilling, very happy um you know a very rich way to live
0: well, I'm glad that you've been generous today. I wanted to like kind <laughs> of give you a chance to talk about this because I, I feel that you understand his writing and, and James Kunstler as a person um, more than a lot of people and he's rough around the edges and he has ideas that I think freak people out sometimes, but I I really appreciate some of the visions that he has for how we could handle contraction. If it happens, I wanted you to kind of talk about that and go into that. And I'm glad you did. So thank you.
1: Yeah, you bet.
0: So before we conclude today, we're going to do the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been reading, watching, listening to, anything that's been on our radar. So what has been up with you, Chuck?
1: So this this week, The Atlantic had two articles I read. And one was, I think everybody read it seemed like cuz i saw it so many places was about uh basically and the 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 assumption that the pandemic is is winding down and ending and how certain sections of society can't let it go i found that article to be fascinating this fascinating look into human psychology uh it was it was it was a little pointed at liberals and progressives but it was like you know why some can't let go of the pandemic it was very interesting and i highly recommend it even more interesting, and I save this one for you, there was an astounding article in The Atlantic about UFOs <gasps> and about, yeah, no doubt. And um, it, it, it's funny because and the article kind of gets into this how the UFO phenomena or the idea of you know UFOs was for so long caricatured as like little green men, And if you believe in this, you're kind of crazy. And if you think that this is that, there's something like whacked about you. And what is interesting is that over the last few years, there have been these very like high level people now who have come out and said, we're not saying little green men. We're not saying spacecraft. We're not saying alien invasion. But what we are saying is that there's a whole lot of stuff that we have actually physically encountered that we cannot explain. Like we don't understand what this is. And as someone who, like my favorite course in, in, un, as an undergrad was physics, I just loved it. The, the idea that there is so much out there that we don't know, that we are like primed for another Einsteinian level revolution and our understanding of the universe and the galaxy and matter and, 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 and all that, to me just seems like so self-evident. And this article just kind of jazzed me up because it was it was real people Everywhere from senators to people in the Pentagon to researchers and and others saying like, look, we're not saying little green men, but we're saying like there's stuff here that we don't understand, that we have, you know, clearly seen. And uh, let's try to get to the bottom of it. And I find that to be fascinating.
0: I did not see that article, but that's very exciting to me. So I'm going to go look it up once we get off the phone here. (laughs) I've been following the – so Joe Rogan Experience has multiple different interviews where he talks to people about UFOs, and they're pretty high-quality interviews. And so I've been following that all year. It's so, so interesting. And I know there's controversy about who's legit and who's not in the UFO community. So – don't email me because I don't know who's legit and who's not. But I love listening to those conversations. And it's, it's crazy to think that there is a lot of legitimate people who are talking about this and maybe, maybe they can um, maybe that's the part that counselor is missing out on that aliens (laughs) are going to come down and save us.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't think people know that you and I, when we communicate on Slack, our like go-to uh, like thumbs up signal is the alien head. And I, <laughs> I just love that about you. It's like. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, I sent you this article today or that we covered today a couple of days ago and you just replied with the alien symbols. So I'm like, so I guess <laughs> it's, it's that's like what our, we're going to cover. Talk to him it on like Friday. It's like
1: inside joke now. I know. I love it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I'll have to go find that article. That's really interesting. And by You're the my
1: way, safe space now for alien talk. So
0: yeah, this is this is a safe space. We can talk about <laughs> UFOs here um, on Upzoned. <laughs> well, I love also that you um, are a physics person because um, this is totally not in character for me. But astrophysics was my best class that I ever took in in college. I think I. I think I got like 100% in the whole class. And I'm I'm not like a, a brainiac, but for whatever reason I did really well in that, that course um, and was so interested in it. And I, I just, I like the math aspect of it. <laughs> um, well, Stella, so. my
1: youngest, um, my kids are gonna do what they're gonna do. And I'm, I try not to like impose dad's will on them, <laughs> but uh, she is talking about, physics and astronomy. And dad's like, yeah, let's, let's go do this. Check this out. So there's a little bit of like tilting the scales of encouragement there.
0: Oh, that's okay. That's how our little nephew is. um, I guess he's like a boy now, but he he's really into space and, and, you know, physics and science. And so it's really cool to see that. And it's not a phase. It's like, he's always been into it. So I'm hoping that eventually he becomes a scientist.
1: Yeah. So what's your what's your down zone, Abby?
0: Oh, so my down zone is actually I was going to share that I'm about to plant my vegetables in the garden this weekend. It's finally time. I've been growing tomatoes and bell peppers in little containers. Um the bell peppers are exciting to me because they come from when I was eating a bell pepper like back in February. And, you know, I, I cut it up and I looked at the seeds and I was like, why do I always throw these seeds away? And so I threw them in a pot and they started growing. So now every time I, you know, cut up a vegetable, I put the seeds in a little bag and save them. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if you do that or if other people no. do that, but I'm just thinking, you know, I may as well just keep these. So I'm going to be like that, that crazy lady one day who has like jars of seeds in her That's house. That's awesome. Um, but it's cool to have uh, no directions, and I haven't been labeling them, um, which is unfortunate. I need to label them, maybe put a date on them. <laughs> it's
1: just random seeds thrown Yeah, random up. seeds.
0: Yeah. yeah, surprise seeds. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I guess um, another thing that I'll share is that last weekend um, we had our annual neighborhood spring cleanup day, which was, you know, related to the garden. We have this large lot that is technically not like a public park. It's owned by someone in the neighborhood and it hosts our community garden and really like the the main gathering space in the community. All the neighbors get together every year to clean it up and they get assigned different tasks. We have sort of a mayor of the neighborhood, so she like directs everybody and gives people tasks I was in charge of cleaning out the, um, the, it's like a little shed, like a tool box. And, um, it was like the worst job for me because I'm afraid of spiders. So I had to like, <laughs> I had to face that fear, you know, could take one for the team and, and take everything out of there with spiders everywhere. I'm I, I found some large, uh, head shears that I was able to use as like an extension of my arm so eventually somebody did come help to grab a couple of things that were covered in in spiders so my biggest fear and nightmare
1: my annual job growing up on the farm I always wound up having to clean out the ice shed so the ice shed was a shed that that had a lower level where they would put the ice in the winter or they put the ice in the winter to keep over the summer this is an old farm um, we didn't do that, but the people we, we bought it from did. Uh, but I had to clean out that shed and I I got stung by bees every other, like all the time doing that. There were bees hives like somewhere around that shed and I was just petrified of bees and I'm like, I know I'm going to get stung. So hey, you have my sympathy. Sheds are scary sometimes when they're not. Uh, it's very interesting. Maintained.
0: I'm not afraid of bees. It's specifically spiders, something I about the legs. Spiders. We're good. Yeah, yeah well i'm proud of you thank you it it might the fear is not gone but it's one step closer to being less afraid of spiders it's like a physical reaction i can't even help it it's yeah. it's an actual phobia i guess huh
1: so yeah. you're not a big spider-man fan
0: <laughs> no i guess not okay <laughs> Well, thanks for your time, Chuck. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck.
1: Bye-bye.